Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We also thank the Management Learning Journal for their wonderful support. Now on with the show. Welcome to episode 97, where we will examine a movie through the lenses of organization theory and management science. The movie is Invictus, produced in 2009 by Skyglass Entertainment and directed by Clint Eastwood. It depicts the early days of the tenure of newly elected South African President Nelson Mandela, portrayed by Morgan Freeman. In part one, we will discuss the movie, the real-life events that inspired it, and what we learned through an organizational perspective. To learn more about the movie, please go to our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Hi, this is Michael coming to you from Utrecht. And it is Pedro coming to you from a snowy day in Copenhagen. And this is Tom coming to you on a rainy day in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in the United States. Welcome, and uh, here is the first episode of uh, 2023. And we've decided to set aside the traditional classics of organization theory and tackle a movie. We've done this a few times already. We've done uh, WALL-E, we've done 12 Angry Men. This time we're going to you know, delve into the world of fiction rather than a documentary. And the movie that we're doing this month is Invictus. It's a movie based on true events, the, the true historical events that occurred around uh, the mid-1990s, uh, events that follow the election of Nelson Mandela as the first uh, post-apartheid president of South Africa to the South African hosting of the 1995 World Cup, Rugby World Cup, that is, in which case Mandela used it as an opportunity to try to build ties between two sides of a racially divided nation. How he did it, why he used rugby, that was basically the context of the movie. It was directed by Clint Eastwood, and uh, it's it was very well received. Uh, this was, I believe the movie was... Uh, 2009. It's It's got like a 76% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and whatever. So it's a worthy picture. How I came into it was that in a uh, in, in my first classes in my doctoral program, we had this course on ideas in education. And, and this was by an, uh, a professor who uh, wanted to introduce us to different ways of engaging on material that we were going to be studying. And uh, he was a big fan of using film. So we watched this movie and discussed it during one of our earliest classes. In my mind, this was a perfect movie for that purpose because it covers, in a historical sense, events that could not be captured in video first person. So you're basically having to discuss a fictionalization, although that, that makes it sound a little bit too fuzzy. You're having to discuss, you know, real historical events and their meaning on change, on events in the world through the lens of film. And so uh, we thought it would be a good time to uh, go ahead and bring that film to you through this podcast, because there's a lot from an organizational perspective that's worth discussing. Thanks, uh, Tom. Yeah, to follow up on uh, your uh, uh, introduction, 
Thank you for having us uh, watch a movie, I would say. So it's not the first time that I'm uh, involved in, a, in an episode on, a, on the movie. So I was involved in the uh, Wally uh, episode um, together with you, at least. This different material other than, you know, written texts is kind of very engaging in, I would say, our type of work, right? So uh, I also try to uh, have these kinds of materials, videos, documentaries um, prescribed to my students because they kind of help us imagine and visualize these oftentimes kind of abstract or organizational processes that we're uh, talking on, uh, about in, in organization theory. So thank you for putting up this, uh, this movie, Invictus. And I would say, indeed, there's a lot of uh, organizational issues raised in the, in the movie, mainly on a, a macro level, right? So it's on major change issues for South Africa post-apartheid episode of that country. And I would love to go into uh, details that certain scenes that's, uh, that's been raised in the play in the movie. And I hope to try to connect it also with some lived experience as I um, lived in South Africa for a half a year in 2005, 10 years after the, the World Cup, uh, the Rugby World Cup, but still that resonated so, so long after, uh, I would say. So um, indeed, when the, when the movie came out in 2009, probably the, uh, the majority of the country kind of relived the whole experience they had with winning the World Cup, but also how it was connected to their, their moment of uh, um, of change and regime change as well uh, in their country. So while the movie was released in 2009, of course, it is a narrating a historical event, right? So it starts in the 90s with the release of Nelson Mandela. And the main action, besides the rugby action, seems to be the struggle of Mandela when in office to try to create harmony, right? It seems that his goal from the first moment, and that's one of the most first important scenes that we see in the movie, is that when he arrives in office and some people are leaving and he gives a speech in trying to communicate that he's inviting those that were leaving because they may be real fearful of, you know, this change, that actually they should not feel fearful and that their work is required to, you know, address all the issues that exist. So he's trying to invite everyone to work together and to try to prevent any kind of sense of retaliation and so on. And a lot of the narrative, the way Mandela's portrayed, the speeches that he gives throughout the movie, is trying to communicate that, this effort to try to create harmony in a country that has been so fractured. And, of course, how rugby can be a tool for that. You know, there's a, there's a couple of uh, very important scenes up front that really set the theme of the movie, which was when he reads a headline that says he can win an election, but can he run a country? I mean, that's the focus, you know, where we posture Mandela at his position, having come out of prison, having won an election and recognizing, you know, because he early in the movie, it wasn't just the speech and, you know, the, what's going on with the, his office. It was also with what was going on with the rugby team at the time. Because rugby as a sport was played by the whites and soccer was played by the blacks. Sport was a point of division. And one of the realizations that he had come to and he explained in the film was how at a rugby match with South Africa, all of the blacks in the stadium were cheering for the opponent and not for the South Africans. And so then he uses that as a uh, thinking about how to use sport as a path to uh, building a bridge between the two. Fast forward, of course, then he co-ops 
the main secondary character of the movie, which is uh, Francois Pinard, the captain of the rugby team, and uses him as an ally in trying to help the rugby team posture itself as kind of a go-between in part by taking actions that expose this uh, this team to not just its traditional white supporters, but also potential black supporters, getting them out there to an outreach, so that by the time that the World Cup happens, and the result of that is very well known, uh, then the whole country is cheering for their their team. That's that's kind of like a summary of the bulk of the of the movie. Along the way, there's lots of micro-conflicts that are presented and resolved between different groups of whites and blacks, especially his bodyguards. The, the white bodyguards of the previous president decide that they're going to take up Mandela at his word and stay on. And the, uh, the blacks who were part of Mandela's entourage did not particularly care for this. <laughs> that, was, that, that was a fun part of the uh, subplot to watch. Yeah, and then he says, well, the Rainbow Nation starts here. The reconciliation starts here. Indeed, he's making connections between blacks and whites, but he's also willing to kind of oppose the resistance within the black community and take them along towards this this idea of reconciliation. And he, he specifically does that in that address that he gives in the work office. So he says, if you're Packing up because you fear that your language or the color of your skin disqualifies you from working here. I am here to tell you, have no such fear. And then he says, what is voorbij is voorbij in Afrikaner uh, language, which is what what has passed has passed. So leave the past. Let's leave the past behind us and um, work towards this uh, reconciliation. And what I find interesting is that uh, again and again in these uh, these micro speeches that that are in the movie it is so much focused on the infusion of new values so the way he tries to kind of build bridges is very much on having old not all old practices of course but relevant old practices continue and have them infused with new values and that's why he also opposes uh, some actions of his own black community. For instance, the way in which the um, uh, governing body of sports tries to get rid of the national anthem and the green and gold colors of the jersey, trying to get new colors for that team, uh, a new emblem as a way of getting rid of the past. And that's exactly where he says, well, we might get rid of some elements of our past, but not all elements of it, and then infuses them with uh, new values. So it's, um, I, th I think that's well brought forward in the in the movie. Yeah, to follow on with the uh, the meeting at the, uh, the National Association of Sport, that scene was really telling because, you know, you had overwhelming, I mean, you know, of course, this is how it was portrayed. Uh, we have to take it as is, as is uh, presented. We don't know exactly, you know, how it ha happened in, in real life. But it was very clear that rugby as, as a sport and the Springboks, I mean, it wasn't just the colors, it was also the name, the Springboks, and all of the other symbology, you know, sport is symbolism of many you know many levels of how uh, how nations and how team supporters or whatever get together and collect and support cheer for live vicariously through their sports teams and so here's a case where a national body wants to totally abolish all of that symbology remove it and and, and uh, here comes Mandela surprising this body joining the meeting because somehow he got tipped off 
um, in a phone call that this meeting was going on. And part of the speech that I think is a really resonant theme that goes on with the building of bridges was the was the theme. I, I won't I can't quote it exactly, but it was if we do what we're about to do, which is to eliminate the spring box from the national identity, then we being the the black community will become everything that the white community feared we would be. I think it was said very close to that. This was a, a, a pretty powerful message. And I think the movie also made it pretty clear that that message didn't resonate right away. They immediately cut to a scene where Mandela goes into the car with his administrative assistant and the administrative assistant who was with him in the at the speech said, well, you know, you got 12 out of the 200 in the room raise their hands to, uh, to, to show support. Uh, this was a very, very slow process of changing minds and bringing about change. To go back to what we were saying about the challenge of not just winning an election, but running a country, right? What I think it's telling about the movie, as you both are saying, is that symbols are portrayed as central here. So we see less the in and out of creating committees or assigned responsibilities and so on, right? That is more of the background and because we see the speeches, because we see the concern with how such move towards exactly continuing um, and allowing the colors and the anthem of the Springboks to continue, that is given a sign of reconciliation, right? So there is a lot of emphasis on the role of a leader like Mandela in terms of the language used, the metaphors that are deployed, the way something is narrated in trying to convey such idea meaning that the running of a country in this case is not just assigning responsibility and creating committees, but it's also about doing the symbolic work. And I think it's interesting in the movie that besides portraying this work that is being done by Mandela, the movie itself, I think, uses symbology at another level because it uses rugby to, I think, to portray how we may think and what does it mean to think about divisions and integration, right? At least that's my interpretation, why there are so detailed scenes of rugby in the movie, because I think it's been used as a metaphor of how different people get together, but they agree upon rules, and therefore they're still able to take part in the uh, same activity, right? So I almost took the use of rugby in the movie also as a sort of analogy to what a leader like Mandela is trying to do. Yeah, small-scale version of society in a way, right? So it's mirroring society. It's the, it's the interactions between different groups. Uh, it's the interactions between members of a, of a group and the rules in which they are allowed to uh, construct their dynamic. So I, I totally agree, uh, Pedro, on, on this, that that's really an element in the the movie because the, you might think the movie is a lot on the changes that occur within the country and and how mandela plays a role in it but you're exactly right a lot of scenes cover the rugby play itself and uh, the way in which team members but also how uh, the public at the stands reacts 
to their their interactions. You see the kind of concern among Mandela when he visits um, the team just before the start of the World Cup and the only black player, Chester, is injured at that point. And you kind of see his concern in his eyes related to this idea of, of diversity and inclusion because what would be the message if we, as, a, as the South African country, would have played the World Cup with a full white team. And um, that's that's kind of underlined in that uh, that visit at the, the training grounds. Um, yeah, without question, um, the level of interaction or the level of uh, interest, personal interest and personal energy between a president and a national sports team w- was definitely unusual. I, I think the movie included some sort of a sense of from the players, you know, at various times were wondering, why is the president getting involved in our business? Why is all of the, you know, why can't we just be allowed to train and get ourselves ready? Until they come to the realization of what Mandela is really trying to do, which was not just to change public perception, but also to change the rugby team's place in the eyes of the country. That in order for the team to be seen as representing the country, they had to be involved with all parties in the country. So that's why he sends them out to uh, have an afternoon with uh, a bunch of uh, young school school kids in a soccer field where they get to introduce them to some of the uh, rules of rugby. And why he sent them to visit the prison where Mandela was residing for 27 years and to actually visit the cell. And by the way, I, I did a little bit of research after watching the movie. Indeed, the cell that they show depict in the movie is the actual cell that Mandela lived in during those 27 years. So there's a lot of, you know, a, attempts to really portray the, the truth of the, the circumstances behind the real Mandela uh, through the film so that uh, we, the audience, can, you know, empathize with, uh, with the situation. So, and Chester himself becomes more than just a token symbol of diversity. He, he over the course of the movie, takes on a greater symbolic character as someone who's representing the future of South African rugby. I mean, that's, I think the uh, the movie did a good job of portraying that aspect of the story. So has one of you uh, been at uh, Robben Island uh, visiting uh, the, the cells of the inmates in the, the quarry? No, I haven't. Uh, I have, back in 2005, and uh, then it was very common as a kind of tourist element of visiting uh, Cape Town, of course. But the the way in which this is depicted in the, the movie uh, is that it is an exceptional situation for the team and that it's done midway the tournament and uh, creates a further team bonding among the members of the team. Having visited this uh, this place and in uh, imagining what it must have been like for staying in this very small cell, because the Pinar kind of in the, in the scene puts his arms out wide and uh, kind of envisions Mandela uh, living in that cell for 27 years. That's an interesting moment because I kind of did that myself when I was standing there and was taken along the quarry and you kind of see how this 
prepare the landscape, uh, the quarry, and the situation of the prison must have been terrifying to Mandela. And yet also it is the place where he was able to start reconstructing South African society and start uh, having the conversations with the uh, people in power at that time. So it's an, um, it's a, again, a symbolic depiction of change and of meaning and values and what to strive for. And he, uh, Mandela in the movie says, you have to kind of strive for more than yourself, right? Be bigger than yourself. And that's where Pinar also starts believing in himself and in, in the team uh, as being able to win this World Cup, where they kind of lost every match uh, in the year before. I mean, I think the role of symbology is well kept also in the poem, right? That gives the title for the movie, that in the movie Mandela shares with Francois, the captain, that finishes with the sentences that say, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, right? There is this very bravery mixed with envisioning, mixed with sense of change and possibilities that, you know, the title, the poem, the work in the rugby, the different speeches all together communicate. Yeah, and uh, a major theme that is also reinforced both by Mandela and some of the other minor characters is just sort of this notion that, you know, why Mandela is doing what he is doing. How is it that a person who was imprisoned for so long, who could have been broken and could have come out looking to re uh, an exact revenge, instead shows a different path, which is to take the high road and be a unifier? Because one can imagine how easy it could have been in other circumstances, other people, whatever, the result would be different. I mean, in order for everybody else to put differences aside and be able to embrace the vision, there had to be a vision in the first place that transcended what had happened uh, before then. And I think that's what makes the overall story powerful, not just the movie, but just the story itself. So we talked a lot about the movie, right? So we try to imagine and think about some of the lessons we take in organizational terms. Absolutely. So one of them that I was thinking is that, just to go back to what we were saying before in terms of the expansion of the scope of the team, right? When Mandela gets involved and they do all this outreach work and there is some resistance on, is there something that we should be doing? It directly made me think about all the debate that exists today um, which is a fragmented debate, interestingly, today on the extent in which organizations should care about social goals, the extent that we should care about diversity and inclusion, right? And is sustainability something that all organizations need to care about or not? So all sorts of higher purpose goals, we may call, social goals, you know, grand challenges, some people call them, that are being brought into the scope of businesses, which we already see this debate there. Of course, it's very, it's kind of, you know, just um, a small scene and a small discussion, but this thing has become very relevant today. And there is, of course, positions on different sides, which think that that is very important and organizations need to consider that and think about that and put in places strategies and procedures and so on. Well, or just, you know, say that it's basically the, um, they say that it's negative, that actually is um, de deforming what would be the goal for organizations. Yeah, that's a really good place to start because that's been a debate that's been going on for quite some time. Certainly as long as I've been a professional, there have been different attempts to sort of reconcile the differences between what say the business has to do to just its core mission of producing products and services versus 
some sense of social responsibility. And I think uh, in earlier times, uh, perhaps it was easy for that uh, those discussions to migrate more towards um, environmental, like, you know, do chemical industries have a responsibility to the environment rather than just dumping their waste into the river and washing their hands of it? But here, as we start getting into, you know, greater purposes behind organizations, there have been companies where the connection with society has been in some way very, very important, especially if you're in a place where you're in a foreign, you know, working as an expatriate in a foreign country and you're supporting, you know, providing goods and services to a foreign people, you're you're being hosted. There should be some sort of a connection. There should be, so, you feel like there should be some sort of a connection that it's more than just the job. It's about the environment, about uh, the people that you're working with. And we go back and forth, and sometimes what drives the back and forth uh, has to do with what pressures a company is under at any given time. If a company faces an existential threat and starts having to worry about downsizing, one of the first things to go is all of this, the social stuff, right? So it's a, it's, it's a longstanding debate. I think this is a good case study for the importance of it as a consideration and what being connected to a society or connected to an issue can enhance the morale, the meaning of the work or what have you. It's a, it's sort of like a pendulum. It's, it doesn't seem to be like necessarily more is always better. It's an interesting case indeed because it's framed in relation to morale among the, the team members, for, for instance. And if you see this current day practice in, in professional sports, it's all over uh, the place. I mean, there isn't hardly any uh, professional sports uh, organization that doesn't offer also these social responsible projects and trying to have an uh, outreach and impact on uh, local communities. But I wonder if it's uh, still that connected to a broader idea on the motivation on, uh, among sports um, organizational employees, right? And that if we transfer that to broader types of organizations, it's often seen, measured even as an instrumental practice for the image of the organization. So what happens when we take this connection to society as a real core element in organizing rather than being just corporate social responsibility, how does it relate to all the values that you have as an organization, be it in a more public sense, being more economic values or cultural values among uh, the way in which you want to interact with uh, your people in the organization. So that was something that I that I got from this example, because it's huge, huge fragmented, but it's a huge, huge debate and development in, um, in management and organization and specifically in, in sports organizations. If anything, it became more complicated, right? So we're recording this in the time of the World Cup of soccer. And we have all witnesses, I think, the debate about LGBTQ rights and workers' rights and all that kind of stuff. And the different positions people have on that and the extent that some teams wanted to make a protest, they were not allowed by FIFA and so on and so forth, right? So all of the things became much more complicated, so to speak, right, to some extent, because of course there are different positions on that. And also I think there is a statement that Mandela makes in the movie about the fact that there is only one black player in the rugby team, Chester. He says, well, that will change, right? But we know from research that changing that is not straightforward, right? I think that is the moment in which policies, practices, how we organize becomes relevant. 
It is even if you assume that there is unwillingness and agreement of that is a goal, realizing that is not straightforward. Yes. Uh, sometimes what, uh, what sports organizations and, and individuals will do is will try to pick and choose which things to be socially responsible for and, in, and try to be as non-controversial as possible. A lot of sports organizations, whether it's individual teams or whole leagues or whatever, among the causes that I've seen are things like breast cancer, racial equality, diversity and inclusion. That's, that's been a very, very common theme. But environmental responsibility. I think sometimes we'll see uh, organizations kind of shy away from something that sounds politically charged in favor of going for what is a bit more universally acceptable. It's not just that it motivates individuals, because in a lot of ways, a lot of individual sports athletes form their own foundations and do a lot of their individual charitable work. But what they choose and, and how they posture themselves to be successful depends on you know which causes that, that they select. And there'll be a lot of shying away from things that would generate more controversy because it becomes distracting to their mission of, or you know their core function of being athletes. So that's one interpretation, right? The challenge of dealing with an expansion of purposes. But I'll insist on that. I think there is also something about the extent the very organization lives up to some basic, I would say, rights and principles that would expect. And I'm thinking here about, for example, the US gymnastic sex abuse scandal, right? And many similar situations like that, in which we know that in the movie, of course, it's great to see that this porting space is one of high purpose and people conduct themselves according to, you know, the best possible standards and values. But we know that there is a lot of exploitation and abuse and all sorts of things within the sports organization, within sports teams. So it's not just a matter, I think, of doing something besides the work to be done, but also being able to carry out the work to be done, training new athletes, you know, setting up competitions in a way that lives up to some, you know, basic ideas and rights. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole system perspective on the organization and not just picking up good causes and, and having these projects or, or wearing certain bands or creating banners or stuff like that. It's it's living up to your values in, in your own sports uh, system or if we take it out of sports within your own industry or sector. So doing good for society is saying something about the values that you have as an individual and as an organization and in which way are these kind of followed up in the way your organization is organized and which, well, quality elements do you also have implemented within the organization, for instance, to prevent use within your organization. I would say this is a kind of a basic right that all organizations should be involved with, but again and again within sports, but also in other uh, industries. For instance, in the Netherlands, we just had a situation in, um, in the media where there was a lot of abuse among personnel. So this is something a lot of organizations can still very, very much um, uh, develop their, uh, their practices uh, on. Yeah. I also uh, uh, think about uh, how sports just uh, more broadly has been undergoing, you know, not just because of the current controversies around the World Cup, but the role of sports in either both building bridges and also burning them. You know, the, the fervor that you see around sports teams can also be divisive. So I'll give a couple of contrasting examples. So, of course, uh, I, I spend a lot of time in the Middle East and uh, we had a lot of Indians and a lot of Pakistanis 
who are working in groups, you know, is uh, a large contingents of them working in places where I was uh, worked and they were working as laborers. But boy, it's really fascinating when you go and see when the India-Pakistan cricket match is on and uh, the, just about, you know, there'll be no work done when this match is ongoing. And if, if you're uh, if you're like most Americans, cricket is not the greatest of spectator sports, including on television. But you wouldn't know that watching how excited that these Indian and Pakistani workers were collected in their own separate groups f- safely across the room from each other. <laughs> because uh, there's there's a bit of a rivalry which can uh, sometimes uh, manifest. Um, when I was growing up, there used to be supporters of different teams would uh, would become rivals. I mean, it, it was it would be the worst forms of groupish behavior to sort of bring in a little bit of uh, Durkheim. You'd almost wear the the jersey of your chosen team, not just uh, to show that you're a fan of a particular team, but to spite the others. Of course, I'm talking high school, but. Using sports as a as a way to assert one's own superiority if their team is doing really really well or something like that and and where rivalries go beyond just friendly competition between sports entities and turn into ugly competition. Obviously, hooliganism wherever it is kind of comports to the same thing. So we, how do you build up the energy, the positive energy that sport as a uniting factor while trying to Suppress is too strong a word, but trying to mitigate against sport becoming divisive based on natural competitive impulses, because it can it can be harmful. It's a great question, uh, Tom, because it's I would say it, it's an integral paradox of of sports, and it's very much viewed in the in the movie, but also in the the examples you gave in uh, in hooliganism. But sports is about connection and about team membership. But it's also about competition and it's about struggle and it's about who's the best and losing and winning. So it's an inherent paradox in in sports. But using the example of hooliganism also provides it as a probably an inherent paradox in our societies, right? So there's this idea of group involvement, uh, membership, but also opposing groups. And how do you prevent this kind of tension between groups from, well, disrupting into something really, really bad, of course. It's an intriguing question, of course. We don't have the, the answer to this in this podcast, but uh, many scholars have uh, gone into uh, this one, probably, yeah. And I would continue and say that's not just a problem for sports, but I could not help thinking of how timely the movie is, because... If anything, politics have become more fragmented because society has become more fragmented, right? And I was thinking about the case of the US, but also Brazil, but also to some extent Europe, in which we know that political parties have become what you're describing, Tom, in some places, that they are total institutions in which people see themselves, right? So the capacity to bridge and dialogue has been eroded. So it's not just a matter of sports supporters that get carried away and turn what would be a competition within some rules and defaults to violence. But we also see the lack of respect in politics, in, you know, in society, in exchanges in bars even, right? So if anything, this is some of the problem that Mandela um, was trying to deal with as represented in the movie, right? So to create some social cohesion in a fractured place, I think it has come back in a different form. 
right? So we're still grappling with that. But of course, as everything in life, it has become a little, a little bit more complex because things get layered, so to speak. Let me uh, also bring up another dimension of conflict within uh, within the sports world. That's that's worth uh, talking from an organizational standpoint, and this is labor management relations. This is something that uh, was, in essence, not really surface. It really wasn't a part of the story in the movie, except for the fact that the president was essentially inserting himself as the management <laughs> in a way, you know, if you, if you want to put it that way. But uh, labor management relations, uh, I mean, when I was growing up was the time when it was starting to sour. Uh, a lot of U.S. sports, for example, were starting to deal with uh, significant disputes between management and players. Oddly enough, in a way, the setting, you know, the setting of conflict where you have uh, players who felt that uh, they were not part or not getting their fair share of revenue or not feeling respected for what they contribute by management. That conflict uh, resulted in a lot of work stoppages in the, um, I guess it was mostly the 1990s, maybe a little bit into the 2000s. It's, uh, it's like every single time now, it's, it's sort of settled into this pattern where, okay, we have, we have peace in our sports world for a few years until the contract is up. And then everybody starts getting all, all antsy. Are we going to see another deep dispute? does have an impact, I think, on the product because, you know, one of the things about sport that people, I think, really take to is how reliable it is, how stable it is, how much of a stabilizing factor it was, how much it was missed when the pandemic happened and all of a sudden we were canceling sports events left and right. That was one of the most visible signs of disruption to our daily lives at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. And the ability to try to figure out how to reestablish some semblance of a remaining sports schedule, such as finishing the baseball, the hockey, and the basketball seasons in the United States. It was, it was considered to be an important signal of perseverance, okay? And, you know, this is where one instance where labor and management came together and really worked hard to, uh, to resolve that so that they could can conclude the season and people could start feeling a little bit better about things, even though the pandemic was still very much an active concern in the background. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback, so if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you for the conclusion of this episode here on Talking About Organizations.